Welcome. You are listening to Intentional Conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. It does me such great pleasure to formally introduce our guest co-host for today. You all know that I like to read their official bio so that you all can know all of the accolades, the credentials, how in which they show up to this space. I don't want y'all asking like, well, why did you bring that person on? I'm going to tell you why. So I'm going to read Aubrey's bio, and then I'm going to give her an opportunity to greet this audience in her own way. Aubrey Blanche, the Math Path, is the Senior Director of People Operations and Strategic Programs at Culture Amp. Through her work, she seeks to question and reimagine systems to ensure that all people can access equitable opportunity. Her expertise focuses on designing and implementing equitable solutions from talent programs and communications to sustainability and philanthropy. A regular thought leader on issues of equity, fairness, and accessibility in organizations, finance, and technology products, Aubrey's work has appeared in outlets all over the world. She is an advisor, investor, and board member to a portfolio of organizations seeking to build a more equitable world. And she also has her own consulting firm as well that I know she will tell us about. But y'all know what to do now, especially for those of you who have been a part of this community. Take to the chat, find those emojis, whatever kind of words that are coming up. But help me to welcome Aubrey Blanche as our guest co-host today. I'm going to stop sharing my screen so that I can amplify her and bring her in as um, and spotlight her. But Aubrey, I'm so glad that you are here. I know that it's early for you. We've already established that you are on the West Coast. And so we're so grateful, so, so grateful. And uh, today we realized when we showed up that we both are wearing like t-shirts with some words that we fill in. We're feeling, some, we're feeling pretty good about. So I shared what mine says. I want you to share what yours says. And then I have a really important question for you to start off. Yeah. So, um, my t-shirt and I have to thank my spouse who likes to get me these things, um, to celebrate the moment, but it says empowered women, empower women, um, which I felt like was a really good vibe for uh, the middle of women's history month. It's an incredible vibe. I love it. And um, uh, yes, empower women, certainly empower women. So I'm pretty sure that's going to find its way into our conversation today. Um, it has to. It's just Women's History Month. And, and yeah, it just absolutely has to. So I think I prepared you for this. But the first question is always, what can you tell us about yourself that we would not know from reading your bio or even from reading your LinkedIn profile? So this is our chance, Aubrey, to get a little bit deeper into who is Aubrey beyond the words on the paper, right? So share with us whatever it is that you feel like um, would be worthwhile socializing to help us know you a little bit better. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was like, that bio is like so fancy and I don't like identify with it at all. Um, no, let's see. Um, so I live in Oakland um, with my two dogs and my spouse. Um, we're a bit of like an activist family. So I obviously work in the equity space. Um, my partner is an activist for sort of trans inclusion and rights in the workplace. Um, let's see what else. We have two dogs, one of whom you can't see, but she's uh, currently hiding under a blanket, hanging out with me, um, being moral support for this talk. I think the other thing is that um, I split my time between Oakland, California, and Sydney, Australia, which I will tell you is a hell of a commute. Um, uh, but for the last uh, couple of years, I've been splitting my time. I mean, my family's actually flip-flopping later this year, and we're making Sydney home base with uh, lots of trips to, to the Bay Area. So yeah, um, wow. I think that's it. I Like I said, I travel a lot. Me and United Airlines are, are very well acquainted. <laughs> That's awesome. So that is that is quite a trek. Yeah, it's not like right up the street, but that's exciting. I I I'm interested to talk with you um, once you have been into a rhythm of that for a while to see how that's going. But that that's super exciting. And the benefit of remote work these days it allows us to be anywhere, right? So yeah, that's awesome. Absolutely. So um, we have a running joke right now. You saw in the beginning where we presented her picture on the screen that she was adorning red, no, pink, pink tresses in her hair. But today she has purple. And I'm going to say whether it's true or not that it's because of her being on NWC's Intentional Conversations podcast. Is that right? I mean, obviously, I wanted to make sure I was properly prepared. And I love nothing more than being all the way in on school spirit. So <laughs> that's right. That's so fantastic. Okay. So one more question for you before we'll just kind of jump in and hearing a little bit more about math path. 
It's so interesting for us when our guest co-hosts are willing to share information concerning the intersecting identities that they have, because it certainly helps us to understand the connection points to the broader work. And so share with us any intersecting identities that you feel like are really important to how you show up. Yeah. So I think there's, there's a couple of like nuances to this for me. So I'm, you know, I'm queer, I'm disabled, I'm like mixed race and Latina, but I also think it's really important to call out that like, I'm white assumed my disabilities are invisible and outside of my very gay hair, you wouldn't necessarily know that I was queer if you didn't sort of see me with my spouse. And so I think it's really important to highlight both of those things because I think it's very influential in my work. So my work tends to be grounded in anti-racism and and disability justice principles. And I think the reason that I've chosen to be intentional about that is because I grew up having racialized experiences that gave me Mm -hmm. a very particular set of politics and way that I move in the world. And it wasn't until I was adult that I like understood things like my white privilege or my, you know, straight passing privilege or my sort of non-disabled passing privilege. And so I see it as really, really important that I'm using that privilege in constructive ways on behalf of the community that I'm a part of. And so I think that identity, it's, um, it can be difficult to thread the needle. And I would say it's um, not lacking in spice in terms of, of people who have very strong opinions about who you are when you look this way versus who you are when you know you have the heritage that you have. Um, but that's it. I think that those identities give me the very specific role of being a translator and an advocate um, for mm. my communities. And that that's how I, I try to show up. I guess you'd have to tell me if I'm successful. <laughs> you're very successful. That's the reason that you're on intentional conversations today is because I've been following your work and there's great alignment to um, your philosophy around this work. And so I, I'm so I've been looking forward to this conversation today. Um, and I said I was going to go straight into math path, but I want to stay on this wavelength for just a moment. We're very fluid here, by the way, Aubrey. But um, as I was listening to you talk, it just it, it occurred to me, and not that I haven't reflected on this before, but I think it's really good to bring this to the conversation. You said, I'm, I'm straight passing, I'm white passing, um, you know, I'm certainly, my, my disabilities are not visible. And I think that sometimes what we don't consider necessarily is the, the juxtaposition there and the tension points that can be created when you're also in this work and in this space, mm-hmm. especially knowing that there are um, right now a lot of criticism to ensure that white women who are in this space are being thoughtful about how potentially um, they could be creating more harm than good. And so just talk to us a little bit about how you navigate that. Oh, totally. All right. And I have to say something like funny, like, do you know how hard, like, it's a psychologically difficult thing when you're like, not only this white passing, but your last name literally means white. Like it's a whole okay, thing. My last name is um, Ironically, my last name came from my Native American yeah. adopted grandfather. Um, but so I think that it is a tension. And I part of it, to be totally honest, is being willing to take the criticism along with it. So one of the things that I've had to learn how to do, and I don't want to represent that it's been emotionally easy, is like when people complain about white women in DEI, I have like the gut reaction to want to like separate myself from that and do like the not all white people. Um, (laughs) And then I think like if I adhere to my own like values and praxis, it's actually like maybe that's a moment for me to reflect on the ways that that actually does apply to me. Right. So, and I think that, that, you know, tropes, beliefs, stereotypes, observations about white people, it would be harmful for me to not be open to the idea that they apply to me. Also give myself grace that there's obvious ways in which they don't. um, Yes. I grew up in a super white, like tiny town in Michigan where like the kids in school make sure that I knew that I was Mexican and that that was of lower status. And so I have that experience, which gives me empathy, but I think I always need to remain super humble about the fact that even though I have those racializing experiences that can give me some empathy, it doesn't mean I fully understand the experience of people who are racialized and also darker skin than me. And both of those things can be true at the same time, right? Like you don't have to accept your one or the other. It's like you actually have elements of both experiences. And I try to use that insight to inform both how I speak to folks on the on the 
higher side of the privilege line, as well as how I try to create space and step back for people who maybe have less privileges. And how do I think about myself as a conduit for their voice rather than someone who needs to speak for them? So well said, so well said. And that shows forth in your work. It truly does. Um, you are so consistent and I, I appreciate how you show up in this space. I appreciate the acknowledgement of holding the middle on the both end. And I can only imagine how complex that could be on certain days, right? As a yeah, practitioner absolutely. in this space. But let me just say that I, I've watched you and I, I think that you show up beautifully and certainly as a strong advocate and ally. And I don't say that just because of my observations of reading your content, kind of following your work, but I've been in conversations with other practitioners that have said, do you know Aubrey? She's awesome. And what they're alluding to is she knows how to do this, how, how to you know kind of navigate this in a way that's very respectful, but that also takes into account, again, the white passing and, and all the other things. And so I am, I'm just, I'm just grateful. I wanted to certainly acknowledge that. That means okay. the world. I mean, oh. I do my best, but I would say the other thing that's super important. And I say this for white practitioners, like I'm speaking as one of you in this moment is like, you absolutely must have trusting relationships with people who will call you out and hold you accountable when you are caring. Yeah. And hard. yeah. Like, I've yeah. done that. It sucks when it happens, but I would rather know than not know so that I can clean it up. And I think that's something where you have to rely on an accountability circle to do that because the fact is you are going to miss things because of your privilege. Absolutely. And thank you for amplifying that. One of the most impressionable uh, moments that I've had, and I've had several of these moments throughout my career, Career in this space where white women that I've been working very closely with who are great astute practitioners in this space, they will on their own account acknowledge, I am not the one to actually be the voice of this. And here's why. And I'm like, well, well I know that. I'm just, I'm glad that you know that too. And that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. You know, and so that, that awareness is so critically important. And um, I just, you know, again, wanted to take a moment to lean into that. Okay. So shall we talk about math path? What does it mean being a math path? Tell us what that means and how has it informed your work? Yeah, so math nerd, uh, math nerd, it, math path is like this portmanteau of math nerd and empath. And it kind of came about, it's a little cheeky. It's like the really uncool version of Ziggy Stardust. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, it really came about, I was working with like a PR firm because I needed to put up a website and I kind of shared with their creative team that I was really struggling to like very quickly and concisely articulate my approach to this work. So I am very sort of data informed, rigorous. I'm a failed social scientist, um, but also that I really believe in taking a deeply empathic sort of um, a focus on human dignity approach to this work. And like most people think of those as dichotomies or opposite ends of the spectrum. And I would argue that there are touching points on the circle. And, and so math path was kind of, they were like, have you thought about this? And I was like, that sounds kind of funny, but also it really gets at the point I'm trying to make. So that's also what my, my consulting firm, um, is called, um, cause it's me and my awesome staff. So it's named after that. But my hope is actually that like, even though I'm like, oh, I'm the math path or whatever, that I think everyone can bring that frame to their work. So it's very yeah. much not meant to be like this exclusive thing in the same way that I talk about, we can all all be equitable designers if we think with an equity lens. And that's yes. kind of what I hope is that like other people kind of take the idea and run with it and make it their own and figure out how to apply it in their own like daily and work lives. I love that. I want to repeat that. We can all be equity designers if we think with an equity lens. That is really strong and that's so important because Aubrey, I'm sure you've experienced this as well, where some people who do care about this work, right, but they're on the sidelines and are like, well, I can't impact anything. I, I can't change systems and policies and procedures, you know. I'm not at that level within the organization where I have the power. And yes, we do have influence though. And so, you know, people are the ones who make up organizations. Organizations, their culture is built and cultivate it because of how people show up, how they share, how they influence, how they model, how they emulate, right? And so I, I, I love that. Everyone should have this, this equity lens about whatever your role and your function is, regardless of if a DEI finds its way specifically into your job description, right? Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay, so let's talk a little bit about uh, Culture Amp and your experience there. What I'm what I'm amazed by is I hear you talk about your individual consulting work that I also hear you talk about, and I know how ingrained and entrenched you are into the work of Culture Amp. And so, how do you do it all? And then, for those who aren't familiar, let us know a little bit more about Culture Amp. Yeah, um, the answer is like the amazing team. I have a culture amp and then also like special shout out to Lawanda and Tisa, who are my team members over at the Math Path, who um, uh, uh, my spouse the other day was like, they keep you in line. And I was like, that is true. They make me look competent. They manage all of the back end. So I think it's really important to call out the just incredible number of people I work with that like make me look good at my job. Like it's, it's not hard to look good at your job when you get to lead such incredible people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, I think for me, I, the work of the math path, like keeps me sharp because I'm working with lots of different organizations, solving a lot of different problems. And I think I love novelty and I, I truly just love my work and I can't get enough of it. So that's why I've got like the two gigs, but my work at culture Amp, I think is been some of the most rewarding of my career career. And the reason is not only because I've basically been given the remit to continuously expand, you know, where we're thinking about equity across the business. So I sort of came into culture amp. Um, I was interviewing back at the end of 2019 and uh, culture amp was hiring for very much a classic sort of director of DEI role. And I came into my interview with the CEO and I said, so I'm really excited about this, but I think this is like, I rewrote the job ad and like sent it back to him. Um, And I was like, here's the role I think you should be hiring for. And he was like, what? You know, I was like, I was either definitely not going to get the job or he was going to be intrigued, but there was not really any <laughs> And what I sort of pitched was I said, you know, you actually are looking for someone with like product management and business strategy experience as well, because you're bringing DEI tools to market. You need someone who not only can, you know, do the right work internally to like actually legitimate the brand promise that you're putting yeah. out there, but you need someone who can help your business figure out how to talk to other chief diversity officers or other DEI practitioners, whether they're consultants or, or in-house folks. And he was kind of like, yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but like, you're totally right. And I was like, you should hire me. I'm available. <laughs> um, and so that's really where the role came was I, you know, the first year really intended to work on the business. And then, you know, with, um, I started in February, 2020. So very quickly with COVID and, yeah. and I think, you know, the renewed call for racial justice, um, I really tamped down and did nothing but really anti-racism education for the first year. Um, mm-hmm. Because something I'm incredibly proud of at Culture Ramp is, you know, we made those anti-racism commitments in 2020 and um, leadership has not been allowed to forget about Black people um, since then. And and I think that, that that has shown up in sort of the expansion of my role. So, you know, year two, I ended up working on the business, thinking about what's our sales and marketing strategy? How do we develop more features that are of value to DEI practitioners? And then over the last sort of year and a half, I've sort of added things to my portfolio that I'm really, really proud of. So that's um, beginning our sustainability program where we have an incredible focus on climate equity. So we take equity as the through line there where we're looking at how when we're spending money on climate initiatives, whether that's through offsets, that we make sure that the majority of our funds go to indigenous led projects or projects led by people who are in regions that are disproportionately impacted by climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So we're talking about economic empowerment of vulnerable and marginalized communities, even when we're talking about the earth. And then there's our philanthropy program. So I'm the, the chair of our culture and foundation. Um, and I also lead our work on commercial grants and discounts. So things like culture amp provides, um, grants of free software for, uh, organizations mm. that do work that benefit the black and indigenous communities in particular. Mm. Um, and we also, um, for um, Black and Indigenous-owned businesses, we actually offer um, a 38% commercial discount. And the reason for that is because Black women are paid 38 cents less than white men for the same work. And so we think they should pay 38% less um, for our services. And so anyway, I just kind of share that because I think over the last three years, we've really intentionally tried to say, if we're making anti-racism commitments, how does that show up in different aspects of our business? And then the last thing I want to tout is, you know, we went from 1.7 to 11.2% Black employees in our U.S. offices over that same time. So we want to make sure that it's both showing up in our culture as well as showing up in our commercials. 
Mm, that is so great. You know, when I first became of cultural amp, it was because I was exposed to the, the very intentional and very equitable way that they center, the organization centers its work and even mm. how it operates. And that was really impressive. I mean, and it's it's in a really aggressive way. And I think that it serves as a model for many organizations to to be inspired by. And so I I'm I'm not surprised that you are feeling a lot of energy, positive energy and passion for being in that space and the work that you that you're doing. Um, I want to read because this relates to what you just shared. I want to read um, a post that I, I shared out, I don't know, maybe about a week or so ago that got a lot of views and comments. And um, I have a feeling that you're going to align with this as well, based upon how you talked about cultural amp centering needs of the most marginalized and really being targeted towards addressing those needs for that population. Here's what I wrote. It's okay to focus on specific marginalized populations with special efforts and initiatives that will drive equity rather than lumping them all in. And oftentimes it's necessary. And this doesn't negate the importance of intersectionality. And when such a decision is made, sure, be curious and ask questions for clarity, but make certain your whataboutisms are pure and recognize that the data you should be collecting will always reveal proof and justification for these targeted efforts. And then I just ended it with centering the most marginalized and justice should always be the goal. Just react to that in your own way. Yes, that's my reaction. Um, no, I'll say a little more. I totally agree with that. And I think the the way that I explain it to people who maybe aren't familiar with these concepts, right? Maybe they're newer on the journey. They don't know like the social justice sort of theory behind that that idea is I talk about the idea that that doing that actually gets us out of making trade-off decisions. So what I'm mm -hmm. not saying is that there aren't any trade-offs in DEI. There are. Right. There are, yeah. But I think that that when you center, you know, so in, in my work, I especially think about women of color and folks with um, disabilities or the intersections of those two identities. And the reason is because I believe when we create experiences that work for people with those identities, they also work for people without them. And I think that the, the path that we've been on at CultureRamp, I will tell you, kind of proves that that's true. So I have never run a gender equity program at CultureRamp. I've been there for a little over three years, and we've never done that. And in the time I've been there, our VP and C-suite has gone from 10% women to 63% women. Um, and so we've really, by focusing on anti-racism and on disability inclusion, um, we've also seen, like, cis, hat, non-disabled white women have also made gains because the type of practices that we created from an anti-racism lens were easily extended to gender. And I think it's really important that I called it out because I do not believe that gender equity issues as easy, like extend back to anti-racism or disability inclusion. So like That's in right. many ways, by focusing on race and disability, you get gender for free and it just doesn't work in reverse. That's and so, or at least I've never seen it work. And I've, I've been in this game for a, a few minutes now. And so that's something that I would say is really important. I talk about in, um, well, it's not a book yet. It's, it's a bunch of chapters thrown together that needs some desperate editing. It will but, be a book. Let's go, we're going to, we're going to name it. It will be a book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But uh, but I talk about this, what I call the equity order of operations. So everything's a little bit of a math idea, but in the same way, like in, you know, whenever you took algebra, um, I don't remember when I did, but whenever you took algebra, you know, you needed to do the parentheses and then the exponents and then multiplication and division and then addition and subtraction. I fundamentally believe in my praxis is that you, you focus on anti-racism, which starts to dismantle a lot of the aspects of supremacy culture in general. Hmm. By focusing on disability, you're thinking about accessibility, but I always argue that anti-racism is accessibility work because you're making things more accessible for racialized people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then addressing transphobia, because I think that often um, companies feel that they have access to do like LGBTQ inclusion work, but often think about that as like what benefits like cis 
white amen. And Mm -hmm. so I think that for me and my work, I focus almost exclusively on those three sort of schools of thought. And I have seen through the organizations I've been at that you have been able to get quantitative gains for other groups as well. And so to circle back, I'm not making a trade-off on whose experience I'm improving by doing that. It's a little counterintuitive, but I'm actually building something that works for more people by focusing on that specific group. Absolutely. And I think that we need to amplify that because that reframe, and I'm saying it's a reframe, I've heard it before, not precisely the way that you've articulated it, but I think that's where a lot of people get hung up. And that's where a lot of the divide comes because it feels like you you used the language before trade-off. It does feel that way. And you said there are some trade-offs, but we have to think about really what that means when we say there are some trade-offs, right? And, and I think it's about helping people to understand how everyone else may benefit from whatever specific, you know, equity efforts that are in place for one particular group that may need a little bit of extra help and support. And um, I don't think that we drive that point home enough. Um, it's, you know, Angela Glover, she's the one that says equity is not a zero sum game, right? And um, I think that we need to keep shouting that from the mountaintop as much as we can. Um, I want to repeat something that you said because I thought it was so, so impressionable. Um, when when people, and I'm paraphrasing him, but when people with those marginalized identities when and are accommodated for, then those without those identities also win. Mm-hmm. And yes, it's hard for people to understand because, you know, we see it as you're taking something from us potentially, and now you're placing those resources in direction of another group. And I'm not belong to that group. So what about me? So that's what I mean by the what about isms. But yeah. So um, accessibility is very important to your work. It came out, of course, when I read your bio, and then certainly it's part of um, some of the talking points that you've shared today. So how can we be confident that we are anti-ableist as it relates to DEI work? Yeah, I think part of it is listen to disabled people. Like (laughs) they will tell you if they are experiencing ableism. And I know that sounds like really silly and simple, but I think that's it. So, and I think the other thing I would say is listen to people with a broad set of disabilities because disability, I mean, similar to like the concept of like BIPOC or whatever, it's this like umbrella term that encompasses so many different lived experiences. Like disability is such an incredibly broad bucket. And even within it, it's got really fuzzy edges. And I say that because, you know, at Culture Amp, we're really, really focused on neurodiversity this year with like kind Mm -hmm. of a special attention to Mm -hmm. autism and ADHD, because that's where we're hearing from our employees that they could use more specific support than they're currently getting. And like, there's a whole debate among the disability community about whether neurodiversity is a disability or not. Um, I will tell you, I am very much on the side of yes, it is. And Absolutely. I have a very specific <laughs> reason. I think that yeah. saying that neurodiversity is not or is not a disability stems from the use of the stigma that's inherent in the medical model of disability, that being disabled is a deficit located in the person. I think if you conceptualize disability using the social model where people are disabled by the environment that they're in, it's very hard to argue that neurodiversity is not a disability because the fact is that the world is not set up to support people with autism or ADHD in the way that they're set up to um, have people who aren't. And so I'm bipolar and and ADD. Um, And so I think it's really important to like, for me, it was a long journey to unpack my own like ableism, but I feel really strongly one individuals can identify how they want, like I'm not going to tell you what to do, but, but I think that there is such power in claiming disability as an identity because it forces us to reckon with this idea of like the world is not accessible or non-disabled people are given the support they need by default. And we need to think about changing our defaults. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I love that. And I'm with you. Neurodiversity, it's definitely a dimension of diversity. And I think we need to amplify it more so than what we do. Um, the team may be able to source this, but I, I recently did an article in the past few months um, for I write for Entrepreneur, and it's on that precise topic, neurodiversity. And um, so I'm glad that you brought you brought it to the conversation today. 
So I have maybe one or two more questions, actually a lot more questions, but I'm going to maybe address one or two more questions. But I want to pause here for a second to let our audience know that if you have a question or a comment or something you want to contribute to this conversation, you will be given an opportunity to do so momentarily. The way that you'll let me know that you're interested is using the raised hand feature. And that lets me know that you are willing to be unmuted and spotlighted, and I will um, make sure that I bring you into the conversation in that manner. But if you're just here and you're like, I want to, you know, just kind of listen in and, and maybe have some of my curiosities answered through the chat, you certainly can send that information in the chat, and we'll we'll make sure that we um, present that question or contribution on your behalf. Okay. So how should someone, this is going back to like neurodiversity, disabilities, whether visible or, or, or invisible, how should someone approach disclosure work? Oh, um, so I have an article on this um, called like how to disclose your disability at work. It's on the culture and blog. So like go check that out. But I think the first thing is like talk to a lawyer or get some legal advice. And I say that yeah. out of like a profound sense of cynicism that like at Culture Imp, we really encourage people to disclose. We like wave the accommodations policy around all the time. We're like, do you need accommodation? We have them. One for you and one for you. Um, but you I get accommodation. You get accommodation. Yes, you get accommodation. Like that's right? like the like energy I want Culture Amp to have. But I would say that overall, like companies are absolutely horrifying and discriminatory towards people disabilities. And so like, I would say like, know your rights and also remember that your company, whether or not they have an accommodations policy has a legal obligation to provide you a reasonable accommodation. Um, yeah. it does not matter if they have done the legwork, they are not exempt. Um, so that's one thing I also would say, do some reflection, whether with your community, part of your care team, or just with yourself to understand what is your goal with disclosure. So yeah. is it, is it getting community because you might actually want to go to an ERG, not your manager for that. Or if you want an accommodation, can you disclose to HR without telling your manager if that would be more, um, because I mm -hmm. think, is it just that you want to be seen for who you are? I don't want to say that like any of any of those justifications are illegitimate, but I mm -hmm. also think you should be realistic about which of those you can achieve at work. Like, um, I think the self-actualization reasons can be harder. It doesn't mean they're inappropriate or illegitimate, um, but I would say finding community, receiving the support you need to thrive at work, those are probably the ones where if you're really, you, so you need to know why you're doing it, and then you also need to know specifically what you want. So this is yeah. one of the biggest challenges we run into at CultureAmp um, when it comes to accommodations is that um, employees will say, like, I have autism and I'm looking for an accommodation and we will say like what would that look like for you and the employee doesn't actually know um and that yeah. can be really challenging we often provide them resources a shout out to Jan um Jan has an incredible library of potential accommodations and resources um we refer to it in our work but we also give it to our campers and the reason I say that's challenging is because while we want to be supportive as like HR folks we're not actually qualified to dictate what accommodations are appropriate for for people and it's also complicated because even someone who has the same condition or disability might require entirely different accommodations to help them thrive right okay. and so and so i really believe and at culture Imp, we think of accommodations as a collaborative and dynamic process so we've had employees who have tried one accommodation it didn't work so they came back and we tried something else and so i think that that's also a really important thing is that to do well you need to know what your goal is with disclosure, but also what do you want? And I don't mean like you don't need to write a list of demands, but often, even though most well-intentioned people can't help you if they don't know what they need to give you or procure for you. That's so rich, Aubrey. We share often, and this community probably has heard it, but we share often the importance and the power of asking very explicitly, what does support look like for you in this moment? But what I don't think we spend enough time amplifying is the, the point that you're bringing out, which is sometimes they may not know how to articulate that. Mm -hmm. And so therein lies a tension point and a challenge, right? And I also love that you brought to the conversation that sometimes whatever those needs are, 
once they're able to be articulated, it can shift, it can evolve. And so how are we giving people the agency to then step forward and say, you know, this accommodation that you've been providing for the past six months, you know, I'm seeing a shift and this is what I need now. So now can you kind of shift and make this, you know, new accommodation, prioritize it. And that could be hard for people to have those conversations, right? Because people just generally don't want to feel like I'm being a burden. And sometimes that's how it feels. I'm now making you work harder just to try to make me comfortable. And I think that everyone deserves to be able to be in an environment where they can show up at their best. Um, but I also think, you know, your point about how, how do you reconcile that maybe there are some ways that that just can't be realized necessarily within that environment, right? And then just, you know, and nothing else knowing that, that's good intel, right? Then you, now you have some decisions to make. Is it something that's as a deal breaker for you? But, you know, what do I want and why? That was so great. It looks like you wanted to jump in and share a bit more insight. Oh, well, I just, I think it's um, like accommodations are so, I have found them some of the most complicated parts of my work because it's where like you can advocate for someone to say like, I've opened the door to you telling me what you need, or maybe you work with a provider to help you brainstorm and articulate. But I would say that's been our biggest point of frustration is we've had, you know, some employees who just don't feel um, that they have like the internal resources to articulate that. And I think that that's one of the, the hardest situations for us to be in, you know, we'll, we'll give the, um, like the option to say, well, here's five different accommodations that we've provided yeah, to here's an idea. Instead of other people. Yeah. Here's a list of things. And so that's one thing, but I would say the biggest thing is making people feel safe. And when they do, um, sort of give people time to figure that out. Right. So it's not, you don't need to put someone on the spot about it. Say, why don't you take a couple of days, reflect on it? Why don't you go have some conversations? Why don't you go take a look at these resources and come back with an idea? And let's talk about your first idea. And let's think about this as an experimental process. And I have found that that approach is more likely to get that person to be able to art, at least yeah. articulate something, but it requires you being open and not putting pressure on the person to know everything in that moment. Um, that is really helpful. That is really helpful. I, yeah, the amplification of that I think is, is, is significant. Um, and I'm curious from your vantage point, Aubrey, when we think about the ultimate accountable partners and the responsible parties, do you see that as a 50-50 shared accountability in terms of the person being open and willing and then the organization also finding ways to help navigate towards clarity around what those accommodations could look like? Some people could say, you know, it could be an easy crutch just to say, well, they don't know what they want. They can't tell me. So, okay, we've done our part. And now let's move on to the next issue. You. Yeah. I mean, I would say I put like 70, 30 on the company to the person. And the reason I say that is mm -hmm. because there's so much that like, um, like so much that, uh, like companies need to do to create a safe environment. And the first thing is like communicate to people that accommodations are welcomed aspects of your workplace experience. And I yeah. think that's like, at culture and we do that in onboarding like we just offer accommodations to everybody um and then mm -hmm. we figure the people that need them will take us up and the other ones will forget that we have the policy in two weeks um and i think that's important that we also very explicitly share with our manager population that like this is a policy this is an appropriate thing for your employees to be doing you know i offer the accommodations policy to everybody on my team um and i'm like hey just wanted to remind you that like this yeah. is here to support you most people say no thanks it's not for me but like how different for that one person to have it proactively offered. Yeah. And so I think it's just not fair to ask people who have probably been historically excluded or discriminated against to like have all the courage to do something in an uncertain environment. And there's a lot that companies can do to create safety and encouragement for the use of, of those processes. And it doesn't have to be expensive. Like yeah. there are certain things in DEI that cost money, but like and sure, like culture, we spend money on accommodations, but the actual dollar amount is like shockingly low to get mm -hmm. really fundamental positive impact um, on our employees. And so that's what I would say is like creating psychological safety or when asking for accommodations is free. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the culture has to be such to where people are willing and open and they feel safe to, to share that information.
Okay, so I'm looking, I don't see any hands raised so far. So the invitation is still open though, but I'm gonna go to my next question. And here's what I wanna do. We often like to bring in, you know, some kind of local news that's been kind of stirring, particularly in the space when we come to you, um, the podcast community. And you and I chatted a little bit about this before the top of the hour, um, but that is the stat came out recently that has gone viral now and has caused a lot of chatter that 70% of individuals who are practitioners in this space of DEI are white. And you said, what did you say, Aubrey, to that stat? Oh my God. I just like could not believe it. Like, first of all, I think it just does not reflect my network. And so I think I was very naive that like, I could only think of a couple of practitioners, um, like that I know that are white. I think one thing that I'll say that might be a little spicy is I don't inherently believe that like white practitioners can't be useful, effective, fantastic in the role. Like, First of all, who's going to talk to all the white people about the ways they need to do better? <laughs> um, but but I think that that for me, it's the distribution. Like that article yes. also said that three point eight percent of practitioners are black. Yes, uh, and that blew my mind, and it feels so deeply inappropriate. Um, yes. and so, and so I think that's it is, is it's not for me, like the critique that like someone from a certain background can't be a really effective practitioner because it takes all of us working with our different identities to bring those perspectives to the table that creates change. But like it, yeah, it was just really upsetting to me. I mean, yeah. Hispanic people, it was like 7.8%. Um, yeah. and that also doesn't feel like enough. Um, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, for me, what is our field? losing by not having adequate representation of those perspectives. Like I, I just think about that and it's such in the a DEI field in the DEI field. I know. And it's not that I went looking for that stat. It actually, you know, kind of found me as it found everybody else. And then I was, you know, asked my opinion about it. And then the, the, the NBC news um, report just caught waves and so many people caught on and they were just like you and I were really shocked and said, what, how can this be and why? And what I also learned through that stat surfacing is that not only is it, you know, only 3.8% of black practitioners that make up the, those, um, those roles, but with all the layoffs that are happening right now, it is those black individuals that 3.8, measly 3.8% who are being disproportionately impacted and transitioned out or let go. And so I wonder what that stat's going to be, you know, you know, months from now, if, if we don't really get it together and figure out that that's an issue, that's an issue. So um, people are asking in the chat for this link. And I know that I have it. Um, so if my team can see if you can source that link, do you remember? Because NBC News did it and it's everywhere. Okay, yes, there it is. Awesome. Thank you, Michelle. So it's in the chat now. Take a look at it. You're probably going to be just as floored as as we all were, but we need to know these things. It's important. Okay, so still no hands. I want to talk about environmental justice because I know that's something that's near and dear to you as well. So many organizations don't focus on environmental justice when thinking about social science and why is that problematic? Why is it harmful? And how can people shift their mindsets to begin seeing the importance of doing so? Yeah, I think um, what it comes down to for me is this idea of if you're making commitments to equity, you need to do it kind of in all spheres. And so if you're doing sort of what is like in corporate called sustainability work, if you're not taking an intentional sort of environmental justice or environmental equity, and I'll talk about my like thoughts on those two concepts in a second, um, you're probably going to be reinforcing patterns of systemic harm. Uh, that have, like, we know that climate change and environmental injustice disproportionately impacts poor, um, racialized, disabled communities. And so I think it's really important to think about that. The other um, maybe controversial opinion that I have is I do not believe that corporations have any business in the, in the business of environmental justice. Um, mm-hmm. I think that that's actually co-opting the sort of brilliance work and impact of smaller grassroots or like on the ground mm-hmm. organizations. So I'm really careful with the work that we do in sustainability at CultureAmp to talk about the fact that we're taking a climate equity approach. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I believe that 
we can funnel, you know, funds and investment into organizations that are engaging in environmental justice, but that as like a capitalistic venture backed organization, it would be the height of hubris and deeply inappropriate for us to be taking on the mantle of justice, given how like entrenched white supremacy is in capitalism. So I think we can take an equitable approach, but I also want to hold incredible respect for the people and organizations doing true environmental justice work and not co-opt sort of co-opt their work for like a branding exercise on our side. I totally agree. And so if you know of those organizations and you have influence with um, the, the the leaders in that organization, then, you know, they have philanthropy dollars, you know, so maybe see if they want to, you know, put some of those funds towards those organizations, right, that are really grassroots um, and, and Ooh, entrenched into I, this work. Can I plug something really quick? Of course you um, can. So- this is not just for environmental justice organizations, but I mentioned this earlier. Um, but as a reminder, if you know of a nonprofit um, that is doing critical racial justice work that disproportionately benefits um, Black or Indigenous people, is working on incarceration or recidivism or um, environmental justice or land rematriation, um, Culture Amp offers free software for them. So if you just Google the Kevin Wiggins Racial Justice Grant, um, we will give you free stuff to help you make your organization run better so that you can have greater impact. So that's um, free up to $25,000. So anyway, just give us that again, Kevin, slow down just on that part. Oh, yes. Make sure we get it into um, the chat. It's the, maybe you can drop it in the chat. It's the Kevin yeah. Wiggins um, racial Wiggins. justice grant. And um, the application takes about three minutes. Um, so we know that you don't have like the time to, to like spend on a grant writer for us. So yeah, it takes about three minutes, fill out a couple forms and we try to get back to people within a month. So anyway. See, and even that, even that so intentional, you know, so intentional, we can't have this lengthy um, dissertation of a process for people to fill out in order to get these free resources, make it quick, make it simple, make it accessible. Culture Ramp really does a great job of intentionally thinking about everything and centering equity and I that it's impressive to see. Okay, so there's a question that came through to the chat. So I want to make sure in our seven or so minutes that we have that we can um, get this person's question. And this is coming from Ashley R., who is a student at International Salon and Spa Academy. And she says, I have a question for the host. I have an aggressive tone. I'm not sure how to be firm in a work setting when self-advocating. Do you have any advice on language? Aubrey. Oh my gosh. Um, I'm like, I'm like, I'm white passing. So like I, I have been called aggressive many times or emotional as a Latina, I get emotional, um, a lot. And, uh, I will kind of flip the script on people and I say, Oh, could you help me understand what about the way I communicated was aggressive to you? I would love the feedback. Um, Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. I think putting it back on them, because my guess is you're probably actually not that aggressive. It's that people are biased towards the way that you're speaking, probably because of your social positionality. And so one that's a little passive aggressive, but I find that like, I am just a little petty. Um, but, but I think that's, it is, you know, thank you for that feedback. I'd love to understand what I said was aggressive so that I could do better next time. Um, one, I think it makes you look really open-minded and humble, but also I think it helps people reckon because if they go, oh, it was just your tone, that is not specific. That is not real feedback. That is probably bias. And so uh, like, that's what I would do. And that's what I have done is say, um, or, you know, I'll just answer for the emotional question. I say, and what do you think is wrong about having emotions? Yeah, that sounds very much like tone policing to me. And so maybe if my team can quickly find a a resource, and Aubrey, if you have one, certainly um, reference it and we can try to find it specifically, but um, learn more about tone policing so that you'll know what it looks like. So when it shows up, you realize, no, this is not me. This is not me. This is the bias and the other person that's showing for Because I think that's important too, knowing how to spot it. So many of us walk away thinking, well, maybe I read that wrong, or maybe, and really it's like, no, you did not. So uh, maybe we can find a a good resource um, before we actually um, end our conversation today. So Cultural Amp has this DEI report that uh, Mm -hmm. it puts out and the 2023 um, has been available. So tell us how organizations can leverage this report. What can they find in it? And uh, let us know what we're missing out on if we aren't already connected to this resource. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the cool things about working as a practitioner at Culture Ramp is that we have access to like this data set of millions of employee experience, like survey questions, and we can cut that data by demographics and see like who's doing differently. Um, we are actively working on the new report, but the old report I think is still useful. Um, and there's a ton of insights in there about how employees of different races and genders are experiencing the workplace, um, trends in sort of DEI professional hiring, and also what I absolutely love is we did an incredibly rigorous analysis of what aspects of workplace culture create diversity, create equity, and create inclusion because they are in fact different and they require different tactics. Um, and so I would say that, you know, some of the findings for those of us deep in the work are a little bit duh. Um, but I think they're useful in convincing those around you who maybe aren't um, as up on this specialty. So um, like, the uh, the findings for us around what helps create diversity, which I think of as like level one, and then inclusion yeah. is level two and equity is level three, mm -hmm. um, was having diversity supportive policies, collecting data, and having a strategy. And the reason I thought this was the funniest finding ever was because I was like, oh, so it's exactly like any other business problem. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, right. And so I think that while there's so much complication and nuance, and I don't want to downplay that in this work, I think in many ways people overcomplicate it. Like put investment and time into solving problems, ask questions of the people that are impacted and what solutions might look like. Like there are many aspects of, of this equity work that is not rocket science. Right. Um, I think that people just sometimes are willfully ignorant because they haven't unpacked their own reluctance to like, to engage in equity work, which means they may lose status or privilege that they previously enjoyed. Right. So anyway, yeah. I think an important thing to call out is that the biggest blocker is often your emotional inability to unpack and deal with the consequences of a more equitable workplace. So well stated. So well stated. We have two minutes. So I'm going to do my best to try to get this last question in that came from one of our um, community members here. LaRonda Great. She's a humanist educator, Black Lives advocate as a Black woman in the DEI space who was counseled out. I wonder what you both think about companies partnering the DEI practitioner with a higher level member of the team to help us be more successful in leading these DEI roles. Yeah, a lot I can say about that, Aubrey. Uh, my first cheeky answer is like, why not make the DEI expert the higher level person? Um, not that we as practitioners that have part. control over that, but like that's me speaking to all the CEOs in the room. Um, but no, I I think it's actually a really brilliant solution. Um, I think there's a couple of reasons, like especially for those of us that come from marginalized backgrounds, like we should have a powerful ally in the business who speaks our names and speaks our agendas in rooms where we can't or we're too tired. So I think it's a really brilliant suggestion but my hope I guess my like closing idea is I hope there's not just one right that's exactly is there a team are they well resourced I mean yeah there's, there's so many things I can say about that as well um, and by the way those last two questions that I presented they are from audience members that are watching live on LinkedIn so we appreciate all of you who are joining in live from LinkedIn um, okay, it's the top of the hour already. I want to give you our last 30, 60 seconds to just share with us, Aubrey, um, if there's anything that I did not ask you about today that you're feeling a lot of energy around that you want to socialize with this community before we let them go for the weekend, I would love for you to do so. Yeah, um, I think the the biggest idea for me is I've talked about my identities and how they influence the work. And I think that we are all better positioned to do this work when we do a deep analysis of our own positionality. So what yeah. space do we occupy in the world and what particular skills, abilities, and also like obligations does it give us about how we talk and who we talk to? And so I think that we all have a lot of really innate wisdom and ways that we can show up and do this work, but it's really important that we figure out what lane we're in and commit to it. And I would say, hold on to that. If you see someone else in a different lane, that doesn't mean you're in the wrong one. Mm, so well stated, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you to each of Having you who have joined me. us today. Yeah. We hope to see you next week. Have a safe weekend. And um, we, we we really are grateful that you're part of our podcast community. Okay. Let, let's make sure we're kind of Oh, yes. our short messages as we as we leave out black women are dope empowered women empower women there you go great weekend everyone <laughs>